This is the stupidest plan that I have ever in my career participated in, he said. I love stupid plans, said Eugenides. How long will it take to get across a dystopia? Twice as long as it would take without those worthless cannon of yours. Eugenides laughed. Remember, kids, whenever you're in doubt about whether or not you should do something, remember what we learned from the great annex. It's fine to do dumb shit, as long as at least it's sort of on purpose. You're listening to the Aetolian Archives, a Queen's Thief reread podcast, taking an in-depth look at Megan Well and Turner's cult favorite fantasy series, because somebody's got to keep an eye on that pesky thief before he steals another empire. Eugenides, put Austria-Hungary back where you found it right now. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. This week, we're discussing Chapter 13 of The Queen of Atolia, in which Eugenides gets wet and sneaks an obscene amount of stuff into Atolia instead of out. It's like a horror movie where you're like, don't go into the murder basement, <laughs> except it somehow ends in a marriage. There's no such thing as monsters, Noelle. We all just need to be loved. <laughs> Did we just accidentally stumble onto the thesis statement of this novel? Now imagine jump scare music at all of the appropriate places <laughs> next time you read. Oh my god, I just thought of something. What? What if, what if, <laughs> what if when Eugenides says, I want to be king of Atolia, <laughs> it played the Kill Bill sirens? <laughs> what if every time, like in the movie version, what if every time it's from Atolia's perspective and she thinks she sees Eugenides, you hear the Jaws theme? <laughs> No, 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 no. It would be, he's sneaking along and it plays like the Pink Panther music. <laughs> but right now, we have to be very quiet because we're sneaking around in this chapter. We're sneaking gently through the riverbed. And they can't light any, they can't light any torches and they can't light any, ta- any campfires. And, uh... That was another another indication of how small the countries are, is they start yeah. out in Edis's capital city, and even when they're right there in sight of the reservoir, they can't light torches, because um, any torches might have been seen from miles across Atolia and reported to the capital. This sounds like a miserable trip. Yes. <laughs> it's dark, and they're wet. They're all, <laughs> they're all damp. It is a, a a a cavalcade of moist boys <laughs> sneaking into Atolia. And there are a lot of them. They lose 16 men. They just get swept down the river. They just die in a sentence. And are never seen again. And it was 20 of them got swept away, but four of them managed to hold on. And so 20 men is just a portion of this group that's traveling along. So yeah. it's large. And they have stuff they've got carts and they've got ladders and, and they've got uh wooden carriages to carry cannons and they have maybe a block and tackle yeah in addition to all their gear and their weapons so they can't they can't light any fires because they'll be seen but they're so they must be so bulky but the the reason that they can do this is they uh they dam up the river and then they walk along the partially drained riverbed. And I thought that that was so cool because Jen probably got the idea to do that from the receding and returning river in the temple. 
yeah. in The Thief. And a lot of this is really... Uh, the Queen of Atolia feels like a sequel to The Thief in a way that the other books don't really feel in their relationships to each other. I mean, Megan Wayland Turner is very like, oh, you can read them in any order. And they are set up so that you can understand what's going on <laughs> in each individual book without having read the others. But this one, there's so much in this book that directly mirrors stuff that happened in The Thief. The river and the dystopia and sneaking into Atolia as opposed to sneaking out. And Jen's development is more the theme for both of these two much more yeah. than the others also. Ooh, and speaking of Jen's development, they have the scenes with Jen and his moist boys, and then they have some stuff with Atolia, and she's talking to Relius, and it says, Relius had grown more cautious since the renaissance of the Thief of Edis. And that word choice is great, because it's literally his rebirth. And we've been talking about how he's been living in this kind of space between life and death, where people are thinking of him as almost dead. Mm -hmm. And then he re-emerges. Um, a question I have for listeners, and also for you, Noelle, is on your first read of this chapter... Did any of you realize that these were wooden cannons before it was told to you? Because there are clues in the chapter mm -hmm. that, like, I mean, once cannons uh, fall into the river and get swept downstream and you find two of them floating, of course they're not cast iron cannons. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure I did not pick up on that until Jen tells Atolia so a few chapters later. And are they... Are they fake or are they just functional wood because a wooden cannon can be functional i'm pretty sure he tells her they're fake they're fake yeah i don't remember i'm gonna be honest with you guys <laughs> i don't remember how this plays out <laughs> somehow somehow this brings us to the king of atolia <laughs> but i couldn't tell you how so no to answer your question i did not <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it says uh and you had pointed out a sentence to me where it says wooden carriages and cannon. And right. I had I had thought of it as wooden carriages and then cannon as a separate thing. Yeah. But you can also think of it as wooden as describing both of those. I think that was probably a deliberate word choice to yeah. be deliberately ambiguous. And then, like, maybe once you go back and you're looking for it, you would be able to see that, like, oh, maybe it was wooden cannon, but maybe it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And um, we also learned at the beginning that most of Edis' army now moves down to Atolia in a separate force from Jen's force. Which is a surprise tool that will help us later. <laughs> and this, it feels very much like build-up, this mm -hmm. chapter. They're on their way now, but the other shoe has not dropped. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting character stuff in here. There's the bit that really pulls at the old heartstrings where uh, he's leaving and Edith calls him back and uh, my queen he turned back unsure what she required only for that said Edith. Eugenides smiled and bowed his head my queen he said again perhaps for the last time which is on page 211 of the 2006 edition oh and there's <laughs> there's more wonderful nuance that the first time you read this you're like oh yeah okay he could die and that's why it would be yeah. the last time but also if he succeeds it will be the last time also and he's giving that up he's giving up that thing that they share 
And they obviously will continue to have a relationship, but it'll be fundamentally different. I'm so emotional. (laughs) (sighs) And uh, that bittersweetness is very poignant and very present. And also, I think, is present in the way that Eugenides interacts with Xenophon. Not necessarily the bittersweetness, but just his, his awareness that what he's doing is irreversible and that he will become a different person, essentially. He's, um, uh, Xenophon doesn't want to be in charge of Eugenides because Eugenides has never taken any orders in his life. But Jen is, like, surprisingly amenable to following his lead. And it says, uh, Eugenides was happy to reassure him, glad that the responsibility of leadership was Xenophon's, not his. And this, I mean, this is, if Jen succeeds, this will be the last time that he is not the person that has to make the decisions. Yeah, that's true. And so I think he's almost relishing not being in charge (laughs) for a little while longer. This is a kind of a note of what's to come that uh, with Xenophon, we see Eugenides from an outsider's perspective in just these few pages of how uh, Eugenides has grown up in a sense. You see the difference between he used to be uncontrollable and now Xenophon is very impressed with his ability to keep up and how he's doing, whatever. So you start to see Jen through other people's eyes. Mm-hmm. Which is all of the next book. And Jen mentions his brother. He has a watch that his brother made for him. And that made me wonder if anyone in his family is aware of what he's doing. Yeah, I mean... His father has to be, because mm-hmm. his father was in on it, which I'm still, I think it was two episodes ago we talked about, like, we, we wondered whether uh, when Jen was explaining the whole plan to the council, is that when he mentioned the word marriage for the first time, but mm-hmm. we still, we never get an answer to that about when was that brought up to Edis and the rest of his family. <laughs> I would bet that his siblings did not know. Yeah, yeah. I would say so. Because what if it goes wrong, you know? They don't know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. I mean, maybe they would know that he's on a mission to Atolia, but um, I feel like that's definitely the type of thing that you would only tell them after you've, you know, pulled it off. And they can't <laughs> argue you out of it. And are these, are these soldiers who are coming with them, how much do they know? Yeah, like, do they know the end goal that, I mean, they know, they must know that the goal is to get Atolia out of Ephrata. Mm-hmm. But do they know why? That they're not? getting so wet so that Jen can get <laughs> something else wet. Noelle. <laughs> um, so in the middle of Jen's journey down the river... There's a split for just a paragraph on Atolia, and then it goes right back to Jen. And um, it's when she uh, wakes up in the middle of the night, and there's a lamp burning on the bedside table. And it says, She pulled the bedclothes up as far as they would go and suppressed a perverse wish to have her old nurse come to chase away the darkness. Perverse because she didn't know if she wanted the shadows to be empty or not. And that's on 218 of the 2006 edition. And so I just noticed that lamp as a sign that um, as we go through the book, in the few scenes we have of her at night, 
we get more and more small details that she's getting more and more uneasy mm-hmm. and she's having a harder and harder time. Like first we see that she had attendance in her room because she could sleep. And then later we see that she had long ago banished her attendance from her room because she wants solitude and she can't sleep anymore. And now we see she can't even sleep in the darkness anymore. She needs a light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, this is just the first reread that that occurred to me. And that perverse because she didn't know if she wanted the shadows to be empty or not. Because she knows Jen has been in her room before. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I feel like that's sweet, but also <laughs> it shouldn't be. <laughs> it's sweet, but it shouldn't be. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> just the Kinda tagline for the whole relationship. We, we, we've asked how old is Jen several times but how old is atolia is also a very relevant question because she was robbed of her adolescence in a lot of ways and in this she she had a perverse wish to have her old nurse come to chase away the darkness and so she she wants to get back to a place of of safety that exists Maybe only in childhood. Mm-hmm. And and she's further away from that than the other characters. Because she has to be... I mean, when, when she's pregnant in Thick as Thieves, they describe her as old to have a first child. So in that book, she, she's got to be over 30. I mean, I know that the, the mm. time period is different standards, but... Arguably, it could be teens is when you have your first child. Maybe late teens. Mm-hmm. At least early 20s would be, I think, the oldest you would typically have your first child so even if she's just 25 27 yeah but the implication is that she's old enough for it to be physically yeah but also we don't know what they know about pregnancy yeah probably (laughs) i mean maybe not that much (laughs) if we're going off of anything like 1500s actual europe yeah (laughs) and she's Inexperienced, she's older than her age. And Jen is, I think, maybe seen as being young for his age. Although that's a misconception in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, it's, he's... He was small for his age and the thief. Yeah. At least. And then he, maybe people were expecting him to have one last gross spurt and he never does. Yeah. But that's all part of me wondering for... All the years that I've spent reading these books, like, what attracts her to him? Because it's definitely a variety of things. And that innocence, youthfulness, youthful mischief is a part of it. Because, I mean, you can't have youthful mischief unless the stakes are low. Or you, you, you treat the world as if it's okay to take risks and... You'll be fine no matter what. And she lives in a very high-stakes world. And even when he joins her in that world, he continues to treat it with that attitude. And that's very... um, I think that helps her relax. Yeah, it helps her take it less seriously. Yeah. That's chapter 13. Next week, victory is so close, Jen can almost taste it, and Talaeus gets the surprise of his life. Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. 
chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. And thank you all for sending in messages. Keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of our favorites of recent weeks is from Code Monkey, who says, Will you discuss the theory that Jen is in fact an actual goat asking for a friend? We don't even need to talk about it. We all know the truth. <laughs> He's a goat, and Megan Whalen Turner knows it. Be, Be blessed, blessed in, in your, your endeavors. endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available.